a radio show that confesses Christ without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes scripture seriously without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. And the problem that God has with that is that he didn't command it or institute it. He, he, he only wants images that he commands and institutes to be made. And when he makes himself, when, it, when the scripture says that Jesus is the very image of God, then he has made an image of himself for us, Jesus. And if we were to not have pictures of Jesus, then we would be breaking the second commandment. But now all this rests upon this moment and that you must do the right thing in order to reap the benefits of this. If you're going to be forgiven, if you're going to be atoned for, if you're going to get the imputed righteousness of God, you must then do this. And and this is what's so terrible about what we call decision theology is that it, it takes everything away of the gospel and puts it all back on the law. I mean, this is a stop-the-press sort of thing to see God, you know? Wow! That's amazing! Stop the song! Tell us about that! That's great! Bringing you the very best in theological game shows, welcome to Table Talk Radio. No, 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 you got that totally wrong. The very second best. Oh, yeah, that's right. Remember? I forgot, there's a competitor on the scene. No, a victor. <laughs> <laughs> and we're great. gladly second best, the world's second best theological game show until someone else comes along, and then we'll gladly be third best. All right. Well, this I is... guess I don't know if what sounds better, the world's second most famous theological game show or the world's worst theological game show, but they mean the same thing. Right. <laughs> well, our uh, second best lineup for today's show is uh, <laughs> Christian or Secular. And then, oh did, yeah, that's did, right. Did you hear about this this new book out by uh, your friend um, Bart Ehrman? He, yeah, old Barty. Yeah, he wrote this book about how Jesus became God, asserting that uh, Jesus <laughs> never claimed to be God, but that oh, yeah. just kind of crept up uh, later. Of and yeah. we're gonna have um, yeah. our expert guest Mark Pearson on the line yeah. to yeah. Uh, discuss that, and that'll be good to know what's. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be good. Um, yeah. Let's see what else we got going on. Some buzzwords, some emails, some uh, table talk radio fun is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, old man. Do are we ever? So I got a buzzword for you. Oh, hit me. Doctrine. The buzzword is doctrine. Typical Fort Wayne crap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, doctrine is what you care about when you don't care about the lost. <laughs> False. <laughs> buzzword fail. <laughs> That's a great definition. <laughs> Doctrine is what's left when all compassion and joy is stolen from your mind and conscience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Doctrine is the word that you use to is the thing that you use to control and coerce other people to doing what you think they should do. <laughs> okay, what is it really? Doctrine means teaching. I mean, oh. it's the same exact thing. The word uh, didaskalos, I think, is the Greek, and you can translate it one of two ways. You can translate it doctrine, or you can translate it teaching, because it means the same thing. Here's the best verse, by the way. This is 1 Timothy 4.16, which says, Paul writes to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine. Persist in this, and by doing so, you will save yourselves and your hearers. <laughs> what? I can't believe that Paul made such a huge mistake by equating teaching and salvation. <laughs> I was thinking about this because you know how... Um, that, by uh, the way, was sarcastic. I hope our listeners know that. that I mean, that the point is the doctrine saves, and that the people who hate doctrine or don't like doctrine or say, it's look, we're about deeds, not creeds, and all this sort of stuff, are, uh -huh. are 
what, this is exactly what you're about to say when I interrupted you, I'm sure. They removed themselves from the saving gift of the Lord's Word. Ah, oh, you took the words right from me. Uh, I'll think of something else to say. You know how when um, <laughs> you meet with uh, your fellow Christians and, and you say, well, we can't really do this joint worship service together because we're supposed to be one in doctrine and we're not one in doctrine. Yeah. And they say, oh, come on. Don't, we should we should just you know be able to overlook our differences and be able to worship together. Yeah. That's and uh, typically, I think that that the kind of person we're talking with at that moment does in fact care about doctrine, um, but they have probably a different definition of what is important. <laughs> right. So they're going to say doctrine matters that you have to believe in uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You have to believe in maybe the two natures of Christ. You have to believe. That uh, it's faith that saves things like this, um, but you know things like baptism or things like the Lord's Supper. Well, those aren't very important things. Yeah, yeah that's right. And it's, it's I think that oh, we yeah. should maybe stop and ask a question: Is baptism important? <laughs> is the Lord's Supper important? And if it is, we should not uh, pretend that those things uh, don't matter in joining with those who we are not in fellowship doctrine with. Uh, I would say the same thing. Okay. My I concur. theological buzzword for you is, oh, you're going to love this one from Theopedia. Where did that go? Did I close that? Do, 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 do. Don't worry. I'll get it again. Um, reprobation. <laughs> <laughs> Here, why don't you I'm define a, what reprobation is? I'll rep- see how close you get to, to, the, <laughs> to the Theopedia thing. Reprobation. Noun. Oh, no, no, no. uh, Reprobate, reprobation. Is that a noun? Yeah, reprobation, noun. Uh, The state of any graduate of the Fort Wayne Seminary. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what it says? Uh, Close. Reprobate Um, would be, I think the theological definition of a reprobate is someone who is outside of God's grace uh, by the Lord's predetermination. This is the election to damnation. I do believe. Right. You're absolutely right. And I wish I had the Theopedia thing in front of me because it had an interesting way of describing it. But it doesn't work. I think the search feature is broken on Theopedia. Probably we broke it. Oh, man. Anyway. Can't you look it up by letter? Oh, probably. I don't really care Theopedia has a definition of doctrine, by the way. Doctrine is a term generally given to the body of teaching that results from weaving together various strands of the biblical witness. Who, Who gave it that definition? When are we going to come up with our Lutheran Theopedia? I guess we have the Christian Encyclopedia. Is that kind of the Lutheran version of Theopedia? Yeah, it is. Exactly that. Except for we use all of these abbreviations that who knows what is it talking about. <laughs> yeah, the the whole thing just existed to spell out these acronyms we have. Right. Well, let's go to the email inbox with the, uh, you know, four minutes we have left. All right, here's one. This is from Chris. He writes, hey there, Table Talk Pastors. Just finished listening to Jonathan Fisk's YouTube series on the book of Revelation, and I must say, it was really good. However, in the last <laughs> segment, on chapter 22 to 20 to 22, I want to jump into the class and ask Pastor Fisk a following question. Uh, can't find the answer in the book of Concord. Here's the question. When the Lord says, Behold, I am making all things new, in what sense does the Lord mean new? I have struggled with this question from time to time and realized the trend of you right now understands the meaning of it to be something like remade or transformed anew. Given the symbolic context in Revelation, I could see how the preceding verses of Revelation could fit into that interpretation when they say, Then I saw a heaven, a new heaven, a new earth. The first earth passed away. There was no more sea. But my mind can't quite compute or make sense of the interpretation when the Apostle Peter's words are also taken into account when he says, 2 Peter 3, 7, 
But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then again, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and then etc. Uh, taking into account Peter, who seems to clearly say the elements, heavenly and earthly, will dissolve and be done away with and be replaced by a brand new heaven and earth, shouldn't we use a clear text applied to Revelation, uh, etc.? Sounds like splitting hairs. Thought you guys might have more insight. I think Chris is making an excellent point here. Um, yeah. And that is, is that when um, the Lord says, I am making all things new in the context of Revelation, um, it's like when you get a new car and you take the old car to the to the junkyard right and so you're not when you say i'm getting a new car it doesn't mean that you're restoring the old car it means that you're getting a brand new car and i think that's the way that we're going to understand the the new heaven and new earth for example that this world is passing away by fire um and we're getting it all new one now the reason i think this is a good point uh, for chris to bring up is that it would fly in the face, as he said, that this is trendy right now to understand of things being remade. That is to say that the, uh, what's that guy name? That guy's name that uh, wrote the book that denied the existence of hell. Love Wins. What's that guy's name? Rob Bell. Rob Bell writes his book, Love Wins, where ultimately the chief goal of this world is to be loving and to bring heaven on earth. And therefore, this world is in the process of being made new again. Well, I don't know, because this place is pretty sinful and, and awful. I think God's just going to have to destroy the whole thing and start over. The, the only thing that won't be destroyed, though, is us <laughs> and uh, the Lord's Word. And that is proof uh, proved by the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Because it, when Jesus took on his resurrected body, it wasn't that like he left the old beat-up body in the grave and took on an all-new one. But that body was restored, and in fact, that's the that's the those things that are marked with the Lord's word will be restored in that way. They'll be brought through death to a to a fullness of life. And so, in that sense, we who are marked with the Lord's word uh, have already been made new, and we will enter into that new earth, new heaven, and new earth through that restoration. Right, and so Saint Paul uh, makes the. Uh, argument in First Corinthians 15 that the the body is a bit like a seed. You know, you 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 put a seed in the ground and you wait a little while, and it come it springs forth as something completely different than what you put into the ground, right? But it is in fact the same thing. It's it's not a completely different thing. So in the same way, our uh, mortal bodies are put into the ground of the tomb, and what springs forth is a glorified body that uh, bears the resemblance of no sin whatsoever. And we, mm -hmm. I think, really don't know what that looks like. I mean, we, we, we have no idea what uh, it looks like to be free from all sin, but we know that it's coming because of uh, Christ's promise. Yeah, and we, and we know from Peter that the mark of the new heaven and the new earth is righteousness, wherein righteousness dwells. So we, we don't want to think necessarily of the newness as a sort of elemental sort of thing or a creative sort of thing, but the newness is the, um, it's the result of the forgiveness of sins, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's right. Do you know what we're playing next? Uh, Christian or secular, my favorite game. That's right. That's on Table Talk Radio. Don't go away.
You're listening to Table Talk Radio. This is most certainly true. And we're back on Table Talk Radio. Christian or secular is the game. Um, ah, that's my second favorite game. Hey, just a moment ago, it was your favorite. I know, but I realize that since we're the second best radio show, that everything should be second best. <laughs> well, why don't you explain to us why we even play this game called Christian um, or Secular? We couldn't think of anything else to do. <laughs> no, that's not it. Um... What we so the way we play? Let me let me tell how we play it, and then I'll see if we can I can remember why. The way we play it is we listen to a song and try to determine if that song is Christian or secular. And then the reason why we do this is because oftentimes it's not easy to tell, and that <laughs> is bad. I think we say that's bad because if something should be Christian, it should be Christian. Yeah, <laughs> you should be able to, to tell. Do with Jesus, is that why we play it? I think so. I I think that we were pointing out kind of the. Uh, Attempt that Christian, the Christian entertainment industry uh, does, is, and that is to kind of take what's already going on in the world, uh, i.e., some kind of a love song, and just attribute it to Jesus. And now he's like, "Oh, you can't really tell." Um, and if you're going to be, I mean, look, a Christian singer can sing about whatever he wants to, but if you're going to say that this is a Christian song and go with a Christian label and and all of this, then it probably should be something different than worldliness i don't know yeah kind of old-fashioned yeah okay well um so i'm gonna play a song and you get like uh, i don't know a minute and a half of each clip and you get to try to decide if this is a christian song uh or a secular song and we're here by the way i bet i'm gonna be good at this game probably have i been good at this game in the past no Hmm. um you i've noticed though that you always make guesses based upon other criteria than like the words or something like that just because like You'll do, like, uh, recording quality or something like that. Mm. Um, but by the so way... you that, think stick to the words? That's the best strategy? You, you can do whatever you want. I, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you how to play the game. But, okay. Right. Um, I was just going to say that the kind of distinction, at least in the way that we play this game, of a Christian song or a secular song is... A Christian song is uh, one that is produced by a Christian record label. Uh, because there's always, you know, Christians in the entertainment industry that might have a Christian song, but... Uh-huh. They're not necessary. Okay, so here's the first yeah, one. Here we okay, go. Okay. You're the first face that I see. Hmm. I'm the last thing I think about. Hmm. Hmm. You never give up when I'm falling apart Your arms are always open wide And you're quick to forgive when I make a mistake You love me in the blink of an eye I don't deserve your love But you give it to me anyway Can't get enough You're everything I need 
That's the song. What 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 are your thoughts, Pastor Wolf Miller? Well, it's a it's a love song. I I noticed, but you know, I I thought of something the other day. Uh, Lo and behold, and that is that music. I know, I know. Music nowadays revolves around a, almost a singular image, and that is the image of love, romantic love, and that's just about what every song in the world is about, almost. And uh, the true both of Christian and non-Christian songs, and maybe it's because romantic love is a kind of image that we all can relate to, or most of us can, anyways. So, what are you implying there? Nothing. Something. <laughs> oh man. Okay. No, go that, was on. The, that was not a dig. Do you have a guilty <laughs> conscience or what? Anyway, this song is definitely about love, and it had a lot of gospel kind of things in it, like I turn away from you and you turn and run to me, and that's kind of a, uh, that's a picture of the, 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 the um, oh, for heaven's sakes, the parable of the father whose son, why, why can't it, oh yeah, prodigal son. And then it said things like, your face is the first thing I see in the morning, and the last thing, that's like a, how we should pray, first thing in the morning. So I think of this, I think this image is, um, I think it's a, of a, a romantic love song with God, and but I think it is a Christian song. You are correct. Oh yeah, this man! Is from the Ooh. band called Plum, and it's called "I Don't Deserve You." Plum, you call it? Yep. Is that where you got your idea of redemption? No, no, that was prunes. Oh, yeah, prunes are. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you see how good my memory is? You have a memory. Do you remember the puzzler from last week? <laughs> All right, uh, ready for your... So you have 200 points, Pastor Wolf. When's the last oh, time you had man. points on this show? I can't remember. <laughs> More than I a week ago. I should say that the points are like something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the points better be good at the end. Oh, yeah. All right, uh, here's the next clip, then. Last time I talked to you, you were lonely and out of place. You were looking down on me, lost out in space. Laid underneath the stars, strung out and feeling brave. Watch the red orange glow, watch you float away. Garbage and city lights You're gonna save your tired soul You're gonna save our lives I turned on the radio To find you on satellite I'm waiting for this sky to fall I'm waiting for a sign And all we are Is all so far I forgot to think about that one to the very end, and then I said, hmm. <laughs> Sorry, forgot. Yeah, we were in everything. Uh, hmm. 
I don't I I do I do not know what this song is about. <laughs> that never stopped me from that should be a pretty talking good about right it there. before. <laughs> That's right. Let's see. I think uh somewhere you're somewhere out there, so it's someone who's searching. I don't this guy seemed like the, the singer seemed like he was kind of at the same time very into the song and also at the same time completely bored with it. I wonder how those two things, those two emotional perspectives are possible. I don't know the answer. But uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say that you're trying to trick me because normally, normally you would do one Christian, one secular, you know, back and forth, back and forth. That's all. And then, but this is, then you think if I go back and forth that I'll be easy to get it. So I think you're going to say that you might play two Christian ones back to back. But I also think you might think that I like to you guess to based to on what you would here. pick. I'm going to say secular. That is secular. This yeah! is. Uh, oh man! We get the get the name of this band, Our Lady Peace. Oh. And uh, this song is called "Somewhere Out There." Somewhere. Huh. All right, we got one more. Here it is. All right, all right, I'm ready. Pull these today. When you try your best but you don't succeed. When you get what you want, but not what you need. When you feel so tired, but you can't. And the tears come streaming down your face. When you lose something you can't replace. When you love someone, but it goes. I know what this is. I got it. Could it be worse? You hear the organ in the background? <laughs> is, that, is that the giveaway? It's a sure sign it's not a Christian song. <laughs> the organ is an out of date instrument. I will try to fix you. All right, you got to offer your guess quickly. Here. I think uh, I will try to fix you sounds Christian, but I do think the use of the organ is showing that no Christian band, no self-respecting Christian band would do this. I think this is secular. Actually, this is from the Christian band Coldplay. What? <laughs> I'm just band? kidding. Coldplay, you're right. <laughs> secular. Wow, 600 points you come away with. Hey, when we man, get oh back man, I can sniff them out. This commercial break, we're going to be joined by uh, Mark Pearson talking about Bart Ehrman's new book, How Jesus Became God. We'll be right back. Somewhere, a mystic is crying. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. There is no way to capture the wonderful gifts that the Lord gives in baptism, but I've worked on a baptismal certificate that tries, that tries to capture the scriptures and the Lord's teaching of grace and mercy and forgiveness in baptism. Baptismal certificates that you can hang on the wall and treasure for a lifetime. 
If you go to wolfsoncreative.com, you can find these certificates. Order them for your church or for your family as well. That's W-O-L-F-S-O-N-C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E.com. The, uh, the problem is that early Jews didn't understand that the Son of God was a divine being, but was a human being. Uh, for example, in the oh, Old Testament... Oh, you know the early Jews better than the early Jews. That's what you're saying. <laughs> wait a second, wait a second. What am I hearing? You're saying we've got a misinterpretation of Jesus and the early Jews are to blame? I can't believe you're blaming this on the Jews. Right. That is so anti-Semitic. Yes. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. That is uh, Bart Ehrman on the uh, uh, Stephen Colbert, uh, his show. Uh, we're here joined by Pastor uh, Mark Pearson. Uh, pastor Pearson is pa- uh, assistant pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Long Beach, California. Uh, look at all these these things behind his name. He's got the adjunct professor of Concordia University, Irvine, and has an MA in Reformation Theology, working on his Ph.D. in New Testament Studies, my goodness, Mark, you're a busy guy. I can also do uh, 100 push-ups, and uh, can you need to add more to my resume for you, Evan? I'd be glad to do so. I would like that. Wait, when he does a push-up, he stands about as tall as I am, because the dude is also like eight and a half feet tall. <laughs> it's true. Do you notice that? I, he probably I, makes you short, look I, short. I did Evan. notice that. Um, of course, Pastor Wilkins You know, Brian... <laughs> Brian, when I hear you on issues, I usually think, wow, you know, he really is able to use language well. And then I come on this program, and you're doing tall jokes? I've heard tall jokes since I was a little kid. Come on. <laughs> well, you know. Well, no, our listeners don't know how tall you are, that you power over them, that you're probably stooping down now in whatever room you're in so you don't hit your head on the ceiling. It's good to, you know, radio wants to create a picture. Well, to paint a picture for Pastor Wolfman, there's there's a stool for him to use the kitchen sink at his house. So, <laughs> God dies is the name of uh, your article, uh, Pastor Pearson, on New Reformation Press. We're going to put a link to this uh, blog post on our website, tabletalkradio.org. Um, but you're critiquing here the new book by Bart Ehrman, um, How Jesus Became God. How would you just kind of wrap up in a nutshell the thesis of this book? Um, well, Aaron essentially wants to say that uh, Jesus was never considered God during his lifetime. He never even claimed to be God during his lifetime. But after Jesus dies, um, you know, the whole Jesus movement comes to a, a, an abrupt halt. He doesn't actually rise from the dead. But uh, a few days or weeks later, his disciples have some sort of visionary experiences, sort of like... Um, bereavement visions. You, you might, uh, if you read about this, sometimes people think that they saw a loved one, you know, you, you, you lose uh, grandpa, and then uh, weeks later, grandma says she swears she saw him sitting in his chair one night, you know, and then she looked closer and he wasn't there, but it was just kind of you know, out of the corner of her eye or something. And so the disciples have some sort of experience like that of Jesus after his death. They say, oh, you know what, he kept talking about uh, this coming kingdom, this uh, apocalyptic world that was going to start. And so I guess we should interpret these visions of ours in light of that. So what it means then is Jesus somehow rose from the dead, and he's ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Now, he didn't really do that, according to Ehrman, but that's how they interpreted it. So the way that uh, Christians came to see Jesus as God 
is basically by misinterpreting um, visionary experiences after the death of Jesus that he rose from the dead. Now, how does Bart Ehrman know so much about what happened after Jesus died? I mean, where does he start from, and, and where does he get his source? I mean, what, what kind of sources are, is he using? Brian, that is an excellent question. Um, the, the main problem will not be... How me, did you get so tall, main... Mark? I would like to know how you got so tall. Uh, All right, never mind. Answer the, answer, answer the airman question um, first, and then I'll, get, I'll have worse questions is, later. So. Um, so, so airman, uh, you know, he knows his stuff, um, and the more I read of him, the more angry I get because he's obviously being disingenuous. Um, one of the things he does that is problematic is that he will quote from the New Testament documents, namely either the Gospels or usually Paul's letters, one of those two groups. He will quote from them as a reliable source to support a thesis he has, but if those sources, the Gospels or Paul's letters, disagree with something that Aaron wants to promote, he then says they're not reliable. So he, it's complete double standard on Aaron's part. So you ask where does he get this from? Well, if he needs to back up anything that he believes or that he holds to, he can say, well, like in the Gospel of Luke, it says this, or in Paul's letters, it says this. But then he will ignore all the things in the Gospel of Luke or in Paul's letters that go against Aaron's thesis. So when you ask what sources does he use, he uses the New Testament, but he uses it uh, in a very cherry-picking way. He takes what he likes, leaves what he doesn't. Now, I'm assuming uh, you, Mark, take the, the Gospels as a historical account uh, how do you make the case that they are reliable to purport the history and not just reflections of uh, religious thoughts of the first century? Ah, well, for one, you want to you always want to look at a document according to the genre in which it's written. So um, these aren't written as poetry. They're not written as um, reflections on religious experience. They're written as biographies. Actually, the classicist Richard Burridge did a comparison of the four Gospels with uh, biographies written in the Greco-Roman world, and he says that's what these are. You have to understand them as such. They are trying to record for you the life of Jesus Christ. Um, and also, simply, if you look at them uh, and try to see, does this correspond to, do, do their claims correspond to the actual world? And the answer again and again is yes. I mean, look at the Gospel of Luke, and he starts off by uh, giving you all these historical references. You know, when uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria, when um, Caesar Augustus gave a census when Tiberius was doing such and such, when, you know, Philip the Tetrarch was doing this. I mean, he is really making sure to ground this, to root this in real history. Does Ehrman offer an explanation of why Christianity would have taken off in the first century? I mean, if these are just based upon visions, does he just explain that people were really dumb back then, or...? <laughs> <laughs> um... He's, he has kind of said that elsewhere, actually. Um, people were very gullible and just kind of believed what they were told. Um, that is so he also, crazy. It's kind of, he kind of buys into the wish fulfillment idea. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to believe that was true? Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to say that you could see dead relatives again? Wouldn't you like to go to heaven if there is such a place? Man, and if so I could he, make up he, a religion, I would like to be good enough to please God. I mean, that's what I would like to do, which seems like that's what every single other religion is. I mean, this... The idea that Christianity is wish fulfillment and um, the kind of dream come true sort of theology is obviously stated by someone who hasn't actually considered the claims of Christianity or doesn't That's want true. to. I, mean, I, them, I, I, I don't know that Ehrman um, even goes this far, but I, 
I find that a compelling argument, that if you look at every religion in the world, I do believe they're all invented by men because they all say the same thing. You have to somehow uh, earn your way, justify yourself, obtain your own salvation, as opposed to Jesus shows up and he you know, turns religion on its head and just makes promises. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me would seem, okay, this one is unique. This one is different than all the others. It's amazing to me, too, that someone who's kind of claiming to be as scholarly as Ehrman uh, is going to really, when it comes down to it, use the fundamentalist argument of proof texting. I mean, to take texts out of contexts and use them as a... Uh, as a defense for what he's already brought to the text? I mean, isn't this the classic liberal argument that the, the, the Christian goes to the text and sees what they want to see when that is exactly what he himself is doing? That's actually a really good point, Brian. And, and as you know, he used to be a fundamentalist, so I think he's kept the method, <laughs> but he's just changed what he believes. That's and, what I mean, call it, it, say, just you're a liberal fundamentalist, you know? I mean, yeah, you, talk about calling someone a so Nazi. Funny. But, I mean, you, now, Ehrman, I mean, he is actually really smart. He does really know the material, and he knows the arguments. And, again, that's why it's so frustrating, because he now writes for the popular audience and really just tries to persuade people who don't know everything, who don't know the whole picture. I mean, he, again, in this book, for the millionth time, he brings up these criteria of authenticity, you know, and he'll say all the time, well, this is what historians do. This is how historians judge things. But in fact, he misuses them, and it's not true that this is a historical consensus. But if you don't know that, it sounds really persuasive. Like, he, he will always make it sound like the consensus of scholars is all he's doing, is all he's presenting. But in fact, that's not the case. But if you don't know that, you just assume, oh, Ehrman has told me that if you're a smart guy, if you're objective, if you're unbiased, if you're just doing history and not religion or theology, you come to the conclusion that Christianity isn't true. And then he cites all these scholars. But like in this, in this book that he just wrote, um, How Jesus Became God, Bart Ehrman does not once engage the works of Richard Balcom or Larry Hurtado, who are the two most significant scholars on the deity of Jesus Christ. He does not engage their work at all, skips over it entirely, but still makes it sound like there's a great consensus in Aaron's favor. We're talking with Mark Pearson. He is the author of the blog post, God Dies, located on New Reformation Press. There's a link to that on our website, tabletalkradio.org. Another segment with Mark Pearson on this book by Bart Ehrman, How Jesus or, uh, How Jesus Became God. We'll be right back on Table Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Unscripted, unprepared, unashamed. Hi, this is Evan Gigline. Thank you for listening to Table Talk Radio. Have you ever wanted to be a radio clown yourself? Now you can with the Table Talk Radio Reformation Glee Club membership. This is my favorite Reformation Glee Club. Really? Tell them how we uh, sign up for the Reformation Glee Club. Yeah, why don't you tell them that, Evan? Oh, well, you just go to our website at tabletalkradio.org and click the support tab. Why don't you tell us uh, the different levels? Uh, yeah, why don't, why don't you tell them that? <laughs> okay, well, there's the radio clown, the table talk radio pietist, the iron listener, or the theological bull rider. Yeah. Why don't you tell them what we get? Uh, yeah, why, why don't you tell them that? <laughs> 
Well, if you sign up for the Reformation Glee Club, you get table talk radio points for every dollar you donate. Oh, nice. I love those radio points. We really do appreciate all the support for Table Talk Radio so we can continue to bring you everyone's favorite Lutheran theological game show. I'm selling you something. <laughs> I know you don't believe it, but it's true. I am. I, I'm trying to sell you or your congregation. If you're not a pastor, if you could give this information to your pastor, I'd really appreciate it. An electronic baptismal certificate. It's an electronic, customized uh, for your church certificate that prints out on an 11 by 17 page. It, it's an old-fashioned looking, but uh, a technologically up-to-date certificate with woodcut images, the four catechism baptismal verses, uh, and a place to input electronically uh, baptismal information, and it's available for $35 per congregation, and you can print as many as you want as, until the Lord Jesus returns. Uh, the way to see this certificate and get in- input to me for it or order it is to go to wolfsoncreative.com. It's W-O-L-F-S-O-N. C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E dot com. And you can click on the certificate there and, and see it. You can even print a sample to see if it, you can print it out. And order information is all there as well. So, again, it's wolfsoncreative.com. That's a customizable electronic baptismal certificates for your congregation. Uh, thanks for your time. And, see, I am trying to sell you something, and I hope you'll buy it. Welcome back. Talking with Mark Pearson, assistant pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Long Beach, California. Uh, now, uh, Pastor Pearson, uh, I know that Bar Ehrman claims that Jesus uh, did not rise from the dead. I think everyone has to deal with this uh, matter of, of uh, empty tomb. How does Bar Ehrman uh, deal with the empty tomb? Uh, well, the empty tomb in particular, uh, he, I mean, this is different than just the resurrection, but the empty tomb specifically, he says that was just fabricated narrative, because essentially, uh, when the followers of Jesus said he rose from the dead, they had to say, okay, well, everyone knows he was crucified, because that was a public, shameful event, um, and Jesus was, of course, a celebrity, so uh, everyone knows what happened to Jesus, and we say he rose from the dead, so how do we bridge that gap? And the interesting thing, if you hear um, Airman's interview on uh, issues, he maintains the whole time that no one was lying. No one, he's not claiming that anyone lied, but that the disciples invented the narrative that you read in the four Gospels of what happens after the crucifixion until Easter Sunday. It is made up that Jesus was actually buried at all, that he was uh, then placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and that the women went to that tomb on Easter Sunday and were confronted by an angel or angel who said, he's not here, he has risen, and then they meet the physical risen Jesus Christ. All that, Ehrman would say, is made up, um, but made up without the intention of being um, misleading, without the intention of, uh, uh, well, I guess just without lying, is what Ehrman says. So you make it up on purpose, but you're not lying. That's what Ehrman maintains. And it seems to me like that's going to be his answer to anything, that it's made up. So, so he makes the argument that, that you don't bury some, that you don't bury a crucifixion victim? So, so in ancient history, we know that you don't bury people after they're crucified, so obviously the Gospels are wrong when they say they buried Jesus after crucifixion. But then it seems to me like if the Gospels came along and showed that Jesus wasn't buried after crucifixion, 
that he would say, oh, yeah, well, look, this is just copying the culture, and anyone would have written that, so they obviously made it up either way. So, so either way, it seems like the claim is going to be that it was made up. Um, perhaps, yeah. I think it, it seems like it would be easier, actually, to get away with claims of a resurrection if you don't have an actual grave. <laughs> if, if Jesus' dead body, as Airman claims, was just kind of thrown into a common grave or left for the dogs or something, um, it's not that hard then to say, oh, and then later he came back to life because there's no place to check. You know, like I, I say to people, um, why do people uh, uh, come up with this idea that Elvis is still alive? And the reason, or one of the reasons, I think, as far as I know, is uh, his name, his middle name is misspelled on his tombstone. Uh, and I say, there's a really easy way to solve this. Dig him up. <laughs> Dig up yeah. dead Elvis, and then you'll know. Um, because we know where the grave is. Uh, because we have it documented that he was buried there. Um, but if, if it was simply, you know, Elvis dies and no one knows where he was buried, it would be a lot easier to get away with claims of a risen Elvis or that Elvis never really died and he picked his death or however you want to cash that out. Um, so I think having an, uh, an actual tomb that Jesus was placed into makes it more difficult to have uh, a resurrection claim that that's not true. Well, and I suppose that's also true of the story of his burial. I mean, if it's true that normally people are not buried after crucifixion, which I do believe is true, normally people aren't buried, then if you do have a burial of a man who's crucified, then that is uh, um, a more difficult claim to make and needs more evidence as well. In other words, when the Scriptures say something that's not normal, like a crucified man was, was buried or that a virgin has a child, or that a man performs miracles, or that Jesus is raised from the dead, it's claiming, it's, it's not an easy claim to make, but a difficult claim to make, and in fact, that difficulty gives more credence to the claim, because they would have needed to it, prove it. And, you're right, and, and especially if you're just making it up, like, you don't, you don't give the name of the guy who owns the tomb then, because <laughs> then there's a way to check, and you don't say that he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, because that even provides more ways to check, and... I mean, all the Jews you're trying to proclaim the gospel to are going to say, wait a minute, you just, you just made that guy up. Or, no, I know Joseph. Uh, I know his family. They said that didn't happen. You give less detail if you're making it up, but they give specific detail. They name the guy. He's a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which means he has a high standing in that culture. Um, that's not something you're going to do if you're fabricating. Does Bart Ehrman offer any um, sources to try and back up these claims when he uh, asserts that the the Gospels depart from the actual historical facts? Um, not in terms of uh, he has an alternate scenario about Jesus that he can reference. What he does is he says, as Brian mentioned, um, if someone is crucified, they're crucified because usually for the act of treason against the Roman uh, Empire and to sort of um, uh, show Rome's power, uh, you're shamed not only in death but after death and that you don't receive a proper burial normally. However, what Ehrman does then to say that this had to have been the case for Jesus too is he finds one exception to the rule. He has a quote from Philo, uh, a Jewish uh, philosopher around that time, who mentions how um, someone was, in fact, buried after crucifixion, and then Ehrman says, I rest my case. Uh, the normal situation is you don't get buried after you're crucified, except we did find one time in Philo where that isn't the case, and because it's only one time and because the big deal is made out of it, it shows that Jesus, like all the others, probably were not in fact buried. But <laughs> if you look at my blog post, 
Um, there are various exceptions. Um, Roman law itself says that if, there are, if people request the body, then you can give them uh, give the body to uh, the family. Um, Josephus talks about how um, it was actually normal uh, for Jews to receive uh, the bodies before sunset. Um, and uh, there's uh, from the Mishnah, uh, which is a Jewish writing, it actually says that Sanhedrin is responsible for burying uh, those who are crucified, because in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if you leave a corpse out, then you have defiled the land, and God will uh, not, uh, or God will punish you for this. So Jewish law says you can't leave dead bodies out. That's against the law of God. It has to do with cleanliness. And notice the Mishnah says the Sanhedrin, they are responsible, which makes sense then that Joseph of Arimathea is the one to go and get the body. <laughs> That's fantastic. And now, now what, I want to maybe take a step back and ask the question. I mean, th- this Bar- Bart Ehrman seems to be the most popular of this kind of craziness where people, um, kind of a popular agnosticism, we know better than those Christian fools, we have advanced scholarship, so we're able to say things like this. And it's kind of a fake intellectual uh, rejection of the gospel. How, how do you, what, what would you say for starting conversations or, or finishing conversations uh, with people who have these, um, have these thoughts and perspectives and these, you, you know, they, they come and we want to talk to them about Christ and they say, oh, you're just a, uh, you, you're just um, drinking the Kool-Aid. We know better than you. Well, I would I would quickly turn that right back around on them and say, well, you're drinking a different kind of Kool-Aid, aren't you? Because how much studying have you done? Or did you just read one book by Bart Ehrman? Or did you just see one thing on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel? Or did you just take one class? Um, that is what most people do. They hear for the first time, maybe, um, some reasons why they shouldn't believe in Christianity, and they grasp onto those with their, you know, all they got. And when you tell them about Jesus, they think, oh, I don't have to listen to you because you're a stupid Bible person, and you don't really know what's going on. I, on the other hand, um, I, <laughs> I watched my five-minute YouTube video, and I've got it all wired. I've got it all figured out. <laughs> um, but you point out to them, you know, you think that I'm not being scholarly. You think that I'm actually ignorant and, you know, putting my head in the sand when it comes to the facts. Uh, and all I do is I read this book that I say is from God, uh, you actually don't know that much. You're just reading the book that you say uh, is correct because it comes from a scholar, but how do you know it's correct? You're just parroting what you were told. Mark, that's all the time we have. Tell us a little bit about this blog post at New Reformation Press. Well, uh, I'm not a, much of a blogger myself, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of the students and friends of Dr. Rod Rosenblatt are doing this. Um, New Reformation Press now is actually a part of something bigger. It's called 1517, The Legacy Project. Um, this is really bringing the, the gospel uh, to Lutherans and especially to non-Lutherans. And so it will be becoming bigger and better as the years, uh, I'm sorry, as the months pass. Um, so right now it is New Reformation Press where you can see the blog, but uh, that's just an entity now. It's 1517, and if you're interested in what's going on there, go to 1517 at a glance. All right, Mark, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Evan. And thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Where the points are like Bart Ehrman's Easter sermons. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Table Talk Radio is not for everyone. Please consult your pastor before listening to Table Talk Radio. 
Side effects may include nausea, vomiting, headache, heartburn, hair loss, hallucinations, and aversion to incomplete sentences with aquatic imagery, psychosis, coma, death, halitosis, lung cancer, brain tumors, sleep gain, internal bleeding, internal combustion, a sudden craving to smell your backseat, claustrophobia, an uncontrollable urge to fight the Calvinists on Twitter, and falling off your treadmill. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. 